Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. Florida's primary elections are just a week away, and although Governor Ron DeSantis has no primary opponent, his influence is still felt on races across the state. Today we'll talk with Tampa Bay Times Tallahassee correspondent Lawrence Maurer about the challenge facing whoever wins the Democratic gubernatorial primary as they take on DeSantis in November. We'll discuss the ramifications of the governor's move to suspend Hillsborough County State Attorney Andrew Warren, and we'll explore how DeSantis's redrawn congressional maps, which are still being challenged in court, seek to shift the balance of power in Washington. WUSF political reporter Steve Newborn joins the conversation to explain what the new maps mean for primary races in the Tampa Bay region and the referendums that voters need to be paying attention to on the ballot. And later in the show, a conversation with WUSF editor Julio Ochoa about how we plan to cover the 2022 elections and how you can make your voice heard. Thanks for being here, Steve. Oh, glad to be here, Matthew. Let's start by talking about some of the congressional races that you're following in this primary, Steve. And Florida's 15th congressional district was redrawn. There are some familiar names, including former Secretary of State Laurel Lee in the Republican primary. Who stands out for you in this race? Right. So Lee is the the big name here. She's the former Secretary of State who uh, resigned to uh, to run for this congressional race. So uh, Lee is up against four other Republicans. The big name here, or at least one of the big names, is State Representative Kelly Sturgill of Lakeland. Now, Sturgill, if you remember, filed the, the state Senate bill to ban abortions after 15 weeks. So um, we have basically an outflanking on the right that Stargell is attempting here. She's got a super PAC uh, backing her that's sending out mailers going after Lee. The the group has followed up with that with uh, TV ads, including one that says Lee failed as Florida's election chief because she refused to do a forensic audit of the 2020 election and that she declined to even do it after reports surfaced that sex offenders and felons had voted. You know, Lee wasn't the only one who said there was no need for a forensic audit. So did her boss, Governor DeSantis, who hired her. And, uh, you know, DeSantis publicly said that random audits were done after the election and there was no need for any kind of a statewide review. And a super PAC called Conservative Warriors is paying for television ads and text messages blasting Lee because the Department of State, which she ran, accepted a grant from a foundation that received money from Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook. So we have this kind of outflanking on the right that uh, Stargill is trying to do. And we also have State Representative Jackie Toledo of Tampa taking part in the Republican primary. She isn't making nearly as much noise just yet as, uh, as Stargill is. Some of those things you mentioned, Steve, um, they are fairly well to the right of the conservative mainstream, I guess you could say. Does that give you an indication of uh, how that district has been redrawn and the kind of voters who may be in there and casting ballots in this primary? Oh, absolutely. This is a very red district. It uh, includes northeastern Hillsborough County, which is very red, uh, northern Polk, and also Southern Lake County. A lot of retirees. It's very white, mostly white. 
Yeah, so I, I think, you know, the writer you get in this race, the more, probably the more votes are going to pick up in this area, at least on the Republican side. Now, there are some Democrats running, too. Um, the big name here is Alan Cohn. He's a former TV uh, news reporter. He ran in this race for the seat in the last race and uh, didn't get very far, but he's also up against four other Democrats. But he's, he's definitely the front runner in that race. Let's talk about District 18. This was also redrawn. You have Scott Franklin, a Republican who currently represents District 15. He's running in 18 now, and he'll face four challenges. And on the face of it, they appear fairly conservative. What can you tell us about this race? Yeah, this district got redrawn to the south. Uh, Franklin was basically moved out of the, the, the district he used to represent. This includes Hardy. DeSoto and uh, Charlotte counties. And, you know, Franklin's run against four of the Republicans, really not many big names in here, but Franklin has gotten 10 times the campaign contributions of the other four Republicans combined. So this should be pretty much of a walk-in. And uh, there's no Democratic opposition. The primary was canceled because no Democrats even qualified for this. So that, that shows you how, how red this district is also. Let's talk about District 13 then. Um, the representative now, Charlie Crist, who is a very familiar name to Florida voters and Tampa Bay residents and voters too, he's vacating the seat to run for a governor. Now, Crist is a Democrat, but his district has become a bit more Republican-leaning as well because of redistricting. Tell us about this Republican primary. Who are the front runners there? Yeah, this is interesting. There's been a lot of press on this. The big name here is Anna Paulina Luna, who, who ran against Chris last time. Uh, she's been endorsed by Donald Trump, and she's also uh, got some interesting backers. There was a, uh, a recent uh, robocall that was done by none other than uh, Lauren Boebert, the right-wing congresswoman, and she is uh, slamming her opponent, Kevin Hazlett, uh, calling him a rhino, a Republican in name only. Uh, there's also Amanda Mackey, who uh, lost to Luna in the Republican primary last uh, last election, and Christine Quinn, who, because of redistricting, she ran against Tampa Congresswoman Kathy Castor in the last race. So she is uh, she is also in this race. One Democrat is left left standing, Eric Lynn. He's a former uh, Obama administration official. He's it. And on a side note, uh, he did have some opposition earlier. State Representatives Ben Diamond and Michelle Rayner had said they wanted to run for this race, but they were redistricted out of it. They basically got their home sliced out of the district. So uh, it's just one Democrat left. Now, there are some referendums on the ballot for Tampa Bay voters, too. They cover things like school funding, public transportation, and protecting wild lands. Steve, give us a quick rundown of the referenda that's uh, up for grabs there. Yeah, so in the in the primary, uh, the August 23rd primary, we have uh, public school referendums in both Hillsborough and Pasco counties. These are both uh, property tax increases, uh, $1 for every $1,000 of assessed value in, in both counties. Uh, in Pasco, it would make the district salaries more competitive with some of the nearby counties if it's approved. Same thing in Hillsborough. Uh, now, they're also looking to expand classes in art, music, and uh, PE. And the Hillsborough teacher pay would go up, according to the backers of this, would go up an average of $4,000. And staffers would see a $2,000 increase. So, you know, with inflation and everything going on right now, this might be a tough sell. So uh, this could be a very tight race in both counties. 
I want to bring Lawrence Mauer into the conversation now. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. Well, Lawrence, some of the congressional races we've been talking about have all been affected by redistricting, but that process was challenged in court. I wonder if you could tell us what's happening with the legal challenges to the governor's redistricting process and, and what the redrawn maps mean on a national level. Well, basically that process is on hold and that the maps that DeSantis wanted are going to be in effect for the general election. What this means is that DeSantis wanted to essentially eliminate a couple of black-held districts, one of them notably in North Florida, stretching from Tallahassee basically to Jacksonville. That's gone. Now uh, that representative, Al Lawson, is going to be facing a tough general election, it looks like, for re-election. And, you know, this is all about the balance of power in the House, right? If they can pick up a couple more seats in the House that could swing, help turn the tide in the House, which, of course, is dominated by controlled by Democrats right now. And so it really kind of plays to DeSantis's national aspirations here, that DeSantis can kind of be seen as somebody who's affecting the outcome in Congress. The big race, of course, for Democrats in the primary is the contest between Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed and St. Petersburg store Charlie Crist, both of them vying for a chance to take on DeSantis in November. And of course, it wouldn't be Crist's first go-round in uh, Tallahassee as governor if if he were to win uh, the primary and then prevail in November. What do you make of this primary race? Yeah, it's Charlie Crist, who's, I mean, been in 16 elections. This would be his, this primary would be his 17th election. And he's been around a long time. He was governor as a Republican from 2007 to 2011. And Nikki Freed, who is a candidate who surprised a lot of people. She became the first Democrat to win a statewide race in a long time, at least for a a cabinet seat or governor in more than a decade when she won in 2018. And this is kind of like a an interesting race because Freed was someone who's kind of like new blood. She was a marijuana industry lobbyist when she was elected. Since then, you know, she's she was kind of seen as like a new hope for Democrats in Florida. She hasn't quite become the leader. Of, she hasn't become the leader of the Democratic Party here in her time in the cabinet. Christ is someone who, I mean, he, he's been governor before, so he's obviously can win a statewide election, but he's lost the last couple times. DeSantis is a powerhouse right now. He's got a lot of money. The party loves him. Um, and he's got a lot of support among people who may not be Republicans. And can either of these candidates beat him? I don't know. It's, uh, I think that they're both, whoever wins is going to face an uphill battle here. But, you know, it, it's really kind of a, do we go with the tried and true or, or tested Charlie Crist, who is very slick on the campaign trail? He's somebody who can who does a good job connecting with voters, or someone like Nikki Freed, who's a woman on the ballot, who that cannot be discounted. There's there's a lot of desire for someone new to challenge DeSantis, but she's not really garnered the support that a lot of people thought that maybe she should have. It's interesting too. I mean, a lot of what you're hearing from the Christ camp and his supporters is like, basically, look at all my endorsements. All of these people are lining up behind me. And on Freed's side, the, the message seems to be Christ is not electable. Look at the elections he's you know, run for at the statewide level uh, since he was governor and lost. Um, why would you pick him? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, the, the situation here. But it's, it's interesting because 
Chris has done a much better job of getting supporters, as you note, but he's also gotten supporters such as Representative Ana Escamani from Orlando. That is a notable endorsement. You know, Chris is a former Republican. I mean, he was in the 90s. He kind of rose to fame on a hard right kind of uh, criminal justice platform. He was known as, that's where he got the nickname Chain Gang Charlie, and he rode that to into statewide prominence and later national prominence. And yet he's still the one getting endorsements from the liberal wing of the party, which, you know, kind of says a lot about kind of where this race is and kind of uh, Nikki Freed's inability to win people over to her side. One of the biggest stories in recent weeks in Florida politics has been DeSantis, Governor DeSantis's removal of Hillsborough County Prosecutor Andrew Warren over a pledge he made not to enforce the state's 15-week abortion ban. Um, how does that fit in with DeSantis's method of governing, Lawrence? Oh, it's classic DeSantis. There's two things, basically. This is a great controversy for him. He's been railing about prosecutors, rogue prosecutors, uh, you know, in California as a campaign kind of platform. And he decided to do a review of prosecutors in Florida. And lo and behold, finds that Andrew Warren said he would not uh, go after or, or prosecute abortion related cases. I mean, this is kind of like, you know, DeSantis has kind of risen to prominence by, you know, having foils. If it's Disney, if it's Fauci, if it's the media, I mean, he's he excels when he has a foil. And so, you know, it's classic DeSantis. He did not contact Andrew Warren before this happened. I mean, it, he could have easily resolved this by saying, giving the guy a call and saying, if you take a case, if you refuse to prosecute a case like this, you're gone. You know, that's a way it could have been resolved, but he didn't even call Andrew Warren here. It's it's not exactly a cut and dry issue. I mean, there it's not like this was an organic thing. There wasn't a case brought to Andrew Warren that prompted DeSantis to do this. This was a proactive thing. And it, you immediately saw DeSantis um, going on right wing TV and radio to you know beat his chest and say, look how I, you know, I'm actually doing something about this issue of rogue prosecutors. Uh, Steve Newborn, if I could come back to you for a moment, you recently spoke to a professor of law at Setson University College of Law in Gulfport, Louis Varelli, about the suspension of Andrew Warren, um, and and he noted that this is going to have an impact, or is intended to sort of send a message to other elected officials. Um, just briefly, what did he say about that? What did Professor Varelli say about the kind of knock-on effect of this suspension? Yeah, exactly. He, you know, he noted that uh, Andrew Warren hadn't actually ruled on any cases. He just said he was not going to rule on certain cases. So he said this was basically a, a preemptive strike uh, against other voices that might speak out on this statewide. And he, you know, he basically said it was a chilling effect, is intended to create a chilling effect on other elected officials to either toe the line or not open their mouths like Andrew Warren did. Professor Varelli noted that uh, this law itself, the 15-week the abortion ban, is in the court system. And uh, some people say it's unconstitutional under the Florida uh, Privacy Clause in the Constitution. So he was acting on something that's still making its way through the court. So, you know, he basically said this is a very premature decision and uh, it had political currents underneath it. 
Back to the overturning of Roe v. Wade for a moment. Um, Lawrence, this has become a focal point for Democrats. I wonder how you see that playing out in the primary or uh, into November. Well, it's certainly been an issue in the Democratic primary. Charlie Crist has been pro-choice from his first days running for office. However, when he was running for governor, he was facing a Republican primary, and he he was very wishy-washy about his stance on abortion. Um, he's kind of defined it however he wanted to define it, uh, saying he was pro-life, but defining pro-life as, you know, it, <laughs> however he sees fit. So Nikki Freed has notably brought up that he's been wishy-washy. She said she's, always, she's the only pro-choice candidate here. On the other hand, I mean, I, I mentioned Representative Hanna Eskamani. She was a former state director for Planned Parenthood. And she's endorsed Charlie and not Nikki Freed here. So it's definitely an issue for the for the primary. And I think it probably is an issue for the general, too. You have not seen DeSantis come out strongly proposing or really proposing any ideas for what to do with the fall of Roe v. Wade. Of course, they passed the 15 week abortion ban, but that was before Roe v. Wade fell. And since then, DeSantis has given a couple of short comments about it, but he has not gone out there proposing, you know, that, oh, we should restrict abortion outright. And that's probably because he knows that this is not a popular issue with anyone but the hardcore of his base. And, you know, you saw what happened to Kansas. You know, they put it on the ballot in Kansas for all the voters to decide, and it lost pretty dramatically. They, of course, could do that in Florida, but they've not proposed that. Um, a lot of people expect DeSantis after the election to kind of propose something dealing with abortion, restricting it further. But I, I don't expect this to be something that he brings up, you know, before November. Other things on voters' minds, though, could be economy, inflation, cost of housing, and those are all general election issues. Lawrence, do you get the sense that these are issues that are driving primary elections as well? Not really. I don't. No. This is an issue that's on a lot of people's minds, obviously. Everybody can feel it. Everybody can affect it. But I think that it's more of a general election issue. You know, it's uh, it, it might be a referendum on Biden, you know, inflation stuff. I don't expect people to be voting for either either Christopher Freed versus DeSantis. I don't see people leaving their party, jumping sides to vote for one or the other because of these pocketbook issues, you know, barring some kind of true catastrophe you know, dealing with homeowners insurance, maybe. And the state certainly has become close to having a catastrophe on homeowners insurance lately. So no, I think that we're entrenched on cultural issues at the moment. And I, I think that that's what probably will, will be the focus of the general. Well, I don't know what you think, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everywhere I go, the, the big thing on people's minds is the cost of everything going up, the cost of housing, cost of rent. I mean, I personally know several people who have gotten kicked out of their apartments because they couldn't afford it anymore. I mean, one was living in, in in a van, you know, in a Walmart parking lot, and thankfully he got another job. But you got to wonder if this is in a, a case that really is going to be decided during the general election, if people's memories are that long, if inflation goes down, you know, it seems to maybe have plateaued at least. Uh, the price of gas has gone down at least 50 cents over the last couple of months. And if that is no longer a huge issue in people's minds, are their memories going to, you know, prompt them to vote on that in November? People have short memories at the ballot box, you know. So that, that's going to be a big question. 
uh, how much of a uh, you know a factor is going to be in November. Steve, there are some changes to how people can vote this election, and recently you talked to Pasco County Supervisor of Elections Brian Corley about those changes. Briefly, what do voters need to know? So there are only a few changes that, that people really, really affect people. I mean, one prohibits um, voters from helping others drop off vote-by-mail ballots uh, by having more than two of them other than their own, unless they're part of your immediate family. Another says the elections offices have to monitor all the ballot drop boxes, and they'll only be open at the same time as early voting hours, so no dropping them off at 11 o'clock at night after hours. And anyone requesting a vote-by-mail ballot would have to have ID, like either a driver's license, state ID, or last four digits of your Social Security number. So Brian Corley basically said, you know, these are changes that affect us, being the supervisor of elections, but most people won't even notice it. So there's no reason to be you know, hesitant about taking part in early voting or mail voting, anything like that. We have been speaking with WUSF political reporter Steve Newborn about the upcoming primary. Thanks for being here, Steve. Oh, my pleasure, Matthew. And also joining us, Lawrence Maurer. He is the Tampa Bay Times Tallahassee correspondent. Lawrence, thank you so much as well. Happy to be on. And you can find more coverage of the primaries, including information about races, candidates and referendums on our website, wusfnews.org. You're listening to Florida Matters. Still to come, how we plan to cover elections at WUSF and how you can make your voice heard. The conversation continues in a minute. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. We're discussing the primary elections, which are a week away, and we want to take a few minutes to talk about how we plan to cover the midterm elections. Joining us for more is Julio Ochoa, one of WUSF's Democracy Project editors. Julio, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Matt. So what's the overall goal for election coverage this year, and what's different about the approach? This year, uh, WSF is building off what we did during the 2020 election and going even further. Uh, During that election, we started covering the issues, not the candidates. This year, we're diving in even deeper to make sure that we're reaching out to people to understand what issues they care about. So um, we've improved a a survey that we we had in 2020, and we'll be holding town halls um, to understand what issues voters uh, want candidates to be talking about. We're also finding new ways to reach out to people uh, to listen to their concerns. So we're not just hearing from our audience, but we want to hear from other segments of the community who we may not have heard from before. And uh, finally, I would say we're being completely transparent about the process. So if you go to our website, uh, wsfnews.org, and and click on our Democracy 2022 page, You'll see our mission statement that is guiding our coverage and uh, a separate story about how we plan to cover the elections and why we're doing it this way. So why is it that we're taking this approach? Well, you know, we all know that candidates have their talking points. And uh, what we found is that many times they are using the media to get their message out. And that message may have nothing to do with what the actual voter cares about. Our job is is not to serve the candidates, but rather serve our audience. 
And we hope that by covering elections in this way, we can create a dialogue that actually engages people and hopefully motivates them to get out and vote and, and really take part in the democratic process. Because, you know, they are the, the, the people that politicians should be answering to. Politicians should, shouldn't be leading this discussion. We're also partnering up with America Amplified. What's this collaboration all about? Yeah, so America Amplified is actually partnering with public media newsrooms across the country to help people understand changes in election laws. So um, we have a form on our website under the Democracy 2022 heading. And if you have questions about like voter registration procedures or deadlines for absentee ballots or what you need to bring to the polling stations uh, or, you know, just general questions about the process, you can fill out this short form and ask us anything and we'll work with America Amplified to get your questions answered. And that's not the only way that people can get questions to us or make their opinion known, right? There's also the citizen's agenda. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, Julio. Yeah, so what that's about, you, if you visit our Democracy 2022 page on our website, you'll find the survey called the citizen's agenda. And this is really the heart of what we are doing during this election season. We want uh, to listen to concerns that voters have and allow that to drive the conversation. So this form has just two main questions. Uh, we're asking people what the most important issues are for them this election season, and we're asking them what they wish candidates knew about their community or their life. We've tried to keep it simple for people because we really want everyone who can to participate. What happens to the questions then, and how are they going to be used in WSF's coverage going forward? We'll take the questions and determine whether there are themes that we should be reporting on. Um, we may be reaching out to some of the respondents to speak with them directly if, if they're willing. And we'll be taking some of the questions or issues directly to candidates to ask them about um, we realize that voters aren't always able to, to uh, get elected officials to directly respond to their issues. And that's where really we think we can help. Uh, you know, for example, if someone tells us their more, most important issue is the increased cost of housing, but they aren't hearing candidates discuss that, we can, we can take that issue to candidates and ask them directly about it and and see what they have to say about it and then you know report that back not only to the person that answered that asked that question but you know the the general public the focus is as you say Julio on what issues people want to hear about rather than candidates but where can listeners find out about the candidates and what they're running on sure well uh we have that as well on our democracy 2022 page we do have a complete list of local candidates and you can find links to their websites and talking points we also have a, a voter guide that contains key information and uh, early voting dates and information about how to register to vote uh, it has links to all kinds of information about who's running and and what races are there are um, so we've tried to put everything in one place and make it as easy as possible for people to get information about the election in the process this year. And then, of course, we'll be publishing stories along the way. Um, and that's that's where these stories will land on our Democracy 2022 page. 
We've been speaking with Julio Ochoa. He's one of WSF's editors on the Democracy Project. And you can find all the information about that project and more on our website, wusfnews.org. Julio, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. And that's Florida Matters for this week. You can find us online at wusfnews.org or via Facebook or Twitter. Search for Florida Matters. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.